Al McNichol is a graduate in creative writing and has a master's in the lack of own voices representation of neurodiverse children in children's books. She has made a contribution to filling that gap with her first novel, A Kind of Spark. It's a fabulous debut about two autistic girls. It was chosen as Blackwell's Book of the Year and also a Times and Sunday Times Book of the Week. Today we're going to be talking about Elle's new book, Show Us Who You Are. It's a gripping science fiction story featuring a friendship between Cora, who has autism, and Adrian, who has ADHD. It's a story about the quest for perfection and immortality, the misapplication of science and technology, and the competing corporate and individual interests and the individual questions that arise. So I'm really pleased today to be welcome into the reading corner, Elle McNichol. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, there's lots for us to talk about, but I'd really like to start with that master's that you did. I wonder mm. if you can tell us a little bit about your work. Well, I realised very quickly into the master's that I wanted to, in some capacity, work in children's publishing. I wanted to work in kids' books. I like to read them. They were the books that shaped me as a young person. And I just think they've got better and better as the years have gone on. I think that the current market looks so different to when I was a child. And I'm 28, so it's not even been that long. Um, So I was really passionate about children's books. And I just thought, gosh, there's really... There's a lot of conversations being had about inclusivity, and yet none of those conversations include disability. You know, I'd be reading a a press release from a publisher that would say, you know, it's so important that we represent children of all races, all genders and all backgrounds. And I just thought, an ability? Is that in there as well? Like, I just think it wasn't in anybody's consciousness to mention disability. And then it definitely wasn't being reflected in the market. So I thought about, um, you know, myself as an autistic um you know person and and being a reader as a child and and how normal it felt to not read about yourself and how acceptable I thought that was I I thought that was completely as it should be um didn't question it at all and of course you know even today children don't have really that articulation to say I'm not represented in this book and I think that's that's a problem it's just something you feel and that you internalize and I was you know now I was 26 and I was in University College London and I thought this is a huge gap that's not being filled. I'm going to write uh, my dissertation about children's books and disability rep. So I got every Waterston's book of the month since the since the, its inception. I got the latest, you know, hundred titles from four big publishers, and I said I just want to find some own voices disabled rep. There was none. There was not one. So I said, okay, I'll find any disabled rep. There was one book that was written by a non-disabled author and I just thought that is not acceptable and I think you know it's it's not to attack anyone I think people are very nervous about approaching disability they're very uh, cautious about it but you know I thought that's not okay and then I I graduated and I I, you know uh, the dissertation did very well and I started to go into publishing jobs and publishing meetings um, in editorial and in marketing and all these things. And in all these meetings, they would say, um, you know, tell us about your your master's uh, in that way that people do in job interviews. And I I would say, well, it's about 
disability rep in kids' books and how poor it is. And a lot of people in those rooms, which are very powerful rooms, would say, well, the reason for that is probably that there isn't really a market for it. People don't want to buy those books. People don't want to read about that kind of thing. Uh, Oh, we did a few books like that a few years ago. They didn't sell. And in terms of own voices, those writers don't read books, let alone write them. So we wouldn't be able to find anyone. All these excuses kept coming up. And of course, inside I'm you know I'm like if you read my resume you'll know that I am one of these people you're talking about (laughs) and I just thought nobody's brave enough to do the work that's the thing I know instinctively the audience is there and I know that it's the right thing to do and that these kids deserve it but nobody's brave enough to take that step and so I I ended up wandering into my my current publishers who are a tiny publisher which maybe some of your listeners know they're called Knights of um, they published High Rise Mystery, um, Jason Reynolds in the UK. Their whole ethos to explain is they only publish inclusive books. So they only publish books about black children or gay children or working class children or disabled children. They had just published a book about a deaf protagonist, which was phenomenal. And and if it had been published a bit earlier, it would have made it into my research, which would have been great. So I, I turned up on their doorstep and said, you know, if you ever need a proofreader who's disabled, because they also like to work with people who are from these groups, I'd love to do it. And they said, we don't have anything on our list right now, but if you have written a book, we'd love to read it. And um, and that book was a kind of spark. And I have a scrapbook full of letters and drawings and emails from kids and their families saying, this is what we have been waiting for. The research started in, in I knew that this gap existed. And kind of a couple of years on now, I'm even more sort of vindicated, I think. Yeah. I want to just pick up a couple of things that you mentioned in that. You talked about disability. Mm -hmm. How helpful is that as a term? Because so much of what you're writing about is recognising the ability within people. I think it's, and I talk to kids about this when I do school visits, I say, what what does disabled mean? What do you think of? And they say, it's someone in a wheelchair. And I say, yes, that's part of it. There's so many other ways to be disabled. Neurodivergency falls under Disability and the Equality Act. And I have no problem saying I'm disabled. It really isn't a word that I find hard to use. Um, there are other words that I, that people sometimes use well-meaningly that I do not like, where people say autism is a disease. No, it's not. Or it's a disorder. No, it's not. It's a condition. So I, I like to talk to kids about how disability can be something so seemingly small that doesn't, you know, maybe... You know, a a rash could be a disability in some ways. A facial difference can be a disability in some ways. Anything that makes moving through society a little bit harder can be classed as disabling. And I like to then try and get kids to think about the fact that it, it is often society that is disabling. They are the ones that are making the disabled life harder because of a lack of access or ignorance or stigma or prejudice. But I, I absolutely agree that I think the publishing's relationship with the word disability was always about tragedy and was always about sadness and woe and how difficult is it for us as a family when we have a disabled family member. One in five people are disabled. That's a huge chunk of the country and everyone just gets on with it. Um, and that's the reality. And that's what's in my books, as well as you know themes of empowerment and themes of self-love and acceptance. It's just this is who I am. And what your story is, is a, well, it defies a genre <laughs> classification. It's, de- it's science fiction. It's a thriller. It's an adventure and it's investigative journalism. You know, it's a mystery <laughs> as well in some way. So a couple more things, really. You talked about disorder and condition. Mm. Can you just explain yeah. what those two things are? 
Um, it's explored a little bit in Show Us Who You Are. And, um, and, to, and to kind of move on a little bit from the last question, I also, in my books, never try to make disability the plot. It's always the mm. lens that the characters see the world in, but not the plot. But in Show Us Who You Are, we do explore what is a disorder and what is a condition. And the autistic community, which includes myself, are very, very keen to express to people that this is not a disorder. It is just a different neurological makeup. Um, disorder ha- carries a lot of stigma and implies that there needs to be a cure, that there needs to be a fix. And that isn't true. There are varying different levels of support needs for autistic individuals. And of course, there are autistic people who are also learning disabled. But I, I absolutely believe, and I try and um, you know, we- weed this into my writing a little bit, that it is all of the community that needs to adapt and and learn to um, listen and understand rather than the disabled individual continually having to fight the stigma and um, and yeah and show us who you are Cora is completely happy with herself really and um, has no issue with being an autistic girl and it is some of the I suppose they would be villains I would call it the villains in the piece that are trying to put her in a box and it, it came a little bit from the reaction to a kind of spark and I'd be doing interviews and I'd be doing panels and um, publisher said, oh, well, we'd love to publish books like that, but um, they don't sell well in, in Asia because Asian culture doesn't like imperfect people. And I just don't see why, you know, I'm imperfect because of the way my brain works and you are perfect, mm-hmm. to be honest. And that's kind of what shows who you are explores. It explores the idea of perfection and does society have a, a warped view of what perfection is absolutely and and we uh, I think we really should talk a little bit <laughs> about the story I mean all of these things are woven through the story as well yes. aren't they? Uh, so there are two main characters in this obviously Cora is the is the main character yeah. Tell us about her. The book is set in a slightly futuristic London, maybe 30 years in the future, uh, no pandemic in sight. And Cora is an 11-year-old autistic girl whose best friend has just moved across the world. So she's a little bit kind of rudderless and, and feeling a bit left out at school. It's that difficult transition period of moving into senior school, the first, you know, year seven. And she's very... Um, isolated a little bit and the girls are getting a little bit clicky and a bit mean and she is dragged to a party by her older brother her much older brother who works for this company called pomegranate and she's dragged to this posh party uptown in london and there she meets a boy called adrian who is every bit as lively and extroverted as she is guarded and suspicious and he wants to be friends immediately and knows that they will be good friends and she resists a little but then realizes that they are in a completely platonic way, they are soulmates. And um, Adrian is, has ADHD, which is revealed a few chapters in, and says, Cora, you know, you are like me. Our brains are like cousins. We are, we are outside, but we are, you know, brilliant. And he really helps her learn to, to love and accept that part of her and also find all the strength inside of it. And, and then to hint at the plot, Adrian's father is the CEO of Pomegranate, which is this very slick, modern company that uses artificial intelligence to create holograms of real people so they can live forever as digital clones that look and talk and sit and stand and think and learn like real humans. And Cora thinks that's fantastic and so exciting. And Adrian doesn't. And that's the first time they don't agree. And there's something mysterious going on at Pomegranate. So mm. that's that's the... Maybe we could talk a little bit about that in view okay. of the audience that we have. So Pomegranate, to begin with, at least, appears mm. to have an altruistic 
mission. Yes. Uh, part of it is kind of entertainment, like meet your favourite celebrity. Yes. <laughs> and then there's this other side of it, which is a little bit like cryogenics, but yes. using digital technology to make somebody immortal so that yes. you never lose your relatives. But science can be used for good or for bad. Yes. The, the point is that pomegranate is is a corporation. They are planning to charge people to spend time with these holograms or grams as they're known in the story. And that is that is the kind of seed that that rots the apple a little bit, is that the person in charge of pomegranate is very enamored with the idea of how much money they can make by exploiting people's, um, you know, excitement by the technology, but also potentially their grief if they're talking to somebody who's only alive as a hologram and they conceal this from Cora. And it also explores ideas of perfection um, and a little bit of social media. It's inspired by things like deep fake videos, which I find very frightening, um, which obviously children are now growing up with on the internet um, and saying, you know, we have to be careful about digital autonomy and about what we let um, corporations do and control. I mean, the corporation is called Pomegranate. Yes. The Pomegranate was possibly the golden apple of Greek mythology. Um, And you do mention Greek mythology in there. I thought it was a really good name. I I, I know (laughs) of two myths in which the Pomegranate features. One is to do with Adonis, who is this kind of perfect young Mm -hmm looking man and then the other is the Hades story Persephone fruit of the underworld Mm. so tell us a little bit about how you came to use that for a name why why was it so good for this corporation well there's very much the reasons you just said it is a, a throwback to Greek mythology and it is the fruit of the dead it's the fruit that allowed Persephone to stay in the underworld and well, also a character says in one of the later chapters of the book, when this this is addressed, Cora says, why did you call it pomegranate? And instead of giving an honest answer, the person is flippant and says, well, because Apple was taken. Um, so it, it's maybe showing a little bit parallel to Apple and how much power they as a corporation they have over everyone in the world. It's also, I think, the sort of, you know, for a superficial reason, it's a slick name that I think tech people um, from Silicon Valley would like to use in there. Um, but yeah, it's definitely referencing perfection and death, which um, are two themes in the book. No one dies on the page, don't worry. But um, it does address, you know, because these grams are what people are hoping to leave behind. So it's definitely addressing immortality and perfection together. Mm. One of the other things that you deal with, because Cora has lost her mother. And you are dealing with grief here as well. And there's a line, uh, again, I'm not really saying where it's from in the story, but (laughs) her father, Cora's father, who's sort of against her becoming involved in uh, pomegranate, says, everyone who's ever been on this planet has felt this pain. Every single one who is yet to be here will as well. Mm. It's almost like we're trying to, through technology, Avoid exorcise it. all the things that make us human. Very much so. 
And I, I, I always, before I start a book, I try and remember a time in my life when I was 11 or 12 that really shaped me, that I really could have needed a book. So a kind of spark was I needed representation. For shows who you are, I remember being 12 years old and I remember my grandmother being killed in a car accident, which was very sudden and very frightening. And I remember all the adults in my life going into complete autopilot, having no idea what to do with a 12 year old and saying, go to school and pretend this has not happened. And how damaging that was and how terrifying it was and how affronting it was that nobody in my life wanted to talk about it, that none of the adults wanted to discuss it, that it was put away. And they because they thought they were doing the right thing. That's, you know, let's be clear. They really thought they were doing the right thing. And they there was a trial and, and it was all kept from me. And I was so angry and so confused at 12 years old. And that's why I, I really feel that I'm happy to have explored these themes in this book for that age range because I know statistically there are 12 year olds out there feeling the exact same way and I just feel like grief is once it hits you that first time and you know that was my first real brush with grief um I'd lost pets but that was the first time and I remember looking at people differently in the street and looking at people and going they must have had this but they're acting like like nothing's happened we all just carry on and and we don't talk about it and it's that's maddening to me because it is such a monumental thing that shapes you and changes you and talking about it just made it so much easier um, which is what Cora learns in the book when she talks about it with her father and says I don't think I can get through this and he says you can everybody has I will help you and that's that's the key not a digital person not a slick answer from a corporation but human connection and um Cora says something like I'm paraphrasing here but But she says, you know, how many people are walking around with this kind of hurt inside them? Maybe that's why people are so angry or maybe that's why people are so mean or or they're that's why, because they're not being allowed to deal with this. And um, so, yeah, I I, I do want wanted to I did want to explore that theme. Can I just quote back at you another (laughs) lovely line? Grief is just love aching for more time. Yeah. And I think that's thank you so much. I think that's how I felt no matter what age you are. You just think, ah, I have all this that has nowhere to go Mm. and it needs a bit more time. Yeah. As you've expressed already, children feel it and us covering it up doesn't stop them feeling it. It just confuses them. I want, you know, to write books that people, people, kids will read this book and never have touched grief, but Mm. they can rehearse it through reading this book. They can safely experience what Cora goes through, even if it's not nothing that they know. Mm. And hopefully they know, as I like to be reminded still as an adult, that you will get through. I'd like to talk a little bit about school, actually, mm. uh, because there's an education element to this, particularly early on. As a really, for me, as a former teacher, a heartbreaking incident where Cora has worked hard to put herself forward to be on the school newspaper. Mm. And she's rejected. This is an early on scene. And I, I want to apologise to teachers because I always write rotten teachers and I know that that's <laughs> not representative. But I was saying this to uh, somebody else the other day. I said, a kid's book with incredibly supportive family and teachers would not get very far because you'd have such a great support system, nothing would happen to you. So I usually... Um, you know have a little bit of a nasty teacher just to help and I'm, I'm very sorry and I know that's not accurate but um, 
but yes, this teacher, he he thinks he's being really kind. He doesn't realize that he's being obstructive. He thinks because Cora is autistic and, and because she has this label, he thinks, I don't want her to get overwhelmed. I don't think she could cope with the social aspect of the newspaper. And so he cuts off that opportunity before she has a chance to do it. And that's extremely common with disabled people is people making decisions on your behalf because they think that you can't do something. And Cora rightly says, if I can't do it, I will learn that and I will decide, but you don't get to decide that for me. Neurodivergent kids are enormously stubborn. They know their own, their own minds. So yeah, there is a, there is always reference to school in my books because school was so hard for me as a autistic kid. And a lot of the letters I get still from autistic kids are about how hard school is. Mm. Well, you know, in fairness to teachers, which you've been very fair in your comments there, the structures and the systems yeah, are not help. there to support what they might want to do. And they feel pressures exactly. from other places coming in the, into play with this. But I was really pleased to see that the teaching assistant yes. <laughs> is much more intuitive to this. And of course, in a way, they have time to spend with children exactly. in a different way. Yes, uh, to the teacher. I, so I we do mention that. Yeah, oh, I, absolutely. And also in a kind of spark, there is a librarian who is very empathetic and very understanding. I always try and balance the the power in a in a school when I in a, in the books I write to show that there of course is so much good um and that it's not a job for for the faint-hearted. And um that you know most people that do it are phenomenal and um yes he Mr Ramsey is the teacher and he's he's only a small part of the story he's not in a norm, you know most of it is in pomegranate but he's just used as an example to show how constricting school can be and how it is a, a bit of a one size fits all sometimes and i've just had the most incredible conversations with teachers since a kind of spark came out but also with shows who you are I mean, they are probably the reason the books have, have been the success that they are. And so many say, I learned more from the kind of spark than from any training I've been forced to sit through. And they just want to do the, do the best for the kids in their class. And I, the next book is reflecting that, I promise. I'm working on it right now. <laughs> That's really good. I think Cora and Adrian are both diagnosed, aren't they, with yes. these conditions? I wanted to ask a little bit about diagnosis and medicalization of what is on a spectrum of a different kind of normality. Yeah. Is diagnosis a helpful word? That's such a complex question. The reason they're diagnosed in the book is just so that I can state outright this is what they know they are, just to make it very obvious representation what is amazing is that since, well, both books now, but since the first book came out, I do get so many messages from adults going, I think this is me. I think like I've never associated this with me, but this could be me I, because they've only ever seen, you know, the Rain Man portrayal. And um, I say, look, diagnosis is a privilege, actually, if we're being very blunt. It's not something that most families have access to for a long time. It's very difficult to get, especially for girls especially for children of colour or working class children. There are so many barriers to diagnosis. So I would say to anyone listening, it is not something that you need to be, to be valid. It is not something that you must have to ask for support or treatment. You know, if you don't feel comfortable using the label without a diagnosis, you can still say, I have sensory problems. I have difficulty communicating. 
Um, I have trouble with my motor skills, which are all, of course, the criteria for for, for being autistic. I, I do only use diagnosis in the book just so I can quickly get those labels um, established. And pomegranate, they ask a lot of questions of Cora in the second half of the book, which mirror um, diagnostic questions mm-hmm. when they're trying to, to make her her gram. They ask a lot of the questions that I was asked and they can be quite jarring, actually. I don't know if that answers your question. It's but... very interesting. I'm coming at this slightly fr- from a slightly personal angle. Uh, my mum, I was a nurse who worked specifically with children who had ADHD, and she was very opposed to medicating for mm. the convenience of others, only I if agree. it was for the convenience of that Yes. Make that child's life better. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes whether medicalization is a problem. ADHD is enormously complex and so misunderstood. Um, and there's so much anxiety that is endemic in people who have ADHD. And I know people on medication who it's a lifesaver for them, but um, it can't be this, this quick fix. The only treatment that neurodivergent children need is structure and support and empathy and understanding. And that sounds simple, but it's the hardest thing. It's so hard to unlearn um, everything that a, that a very neurotypical culture has taught. And, you know, in a dream world, we'd have an education system that could tailor for everyone. But of course, that's not possible. But yes, it's the medication is, is I don't rule it out because I know people mm-hmm. who've been helped by it. But find what makes that neurodivergent child flourish. And, yeah. and that environment is what is going to be the ultimate saviour. Yeah, really, really interesting answer. And you've talked about empathy and understanding. And of course, there's nothing better than literature Mm. for helping. uh, Well, we've got the Empathy Lab and all the work that they're doing. But, you know, forever literature has been about stepping into the mind of somebody else. Mm. And now we have the opportunity to step into the mind of an own voices, (laughs) which (laughs) has got to be, you know, the best of all. And so... I I would just like to thank you so much, first of all, for writing the book, uh, but also for taking time out today to talk to me about it. I know it's going to find lots of readers, lots of young people, but I I rather suspect, as you said, lots of education professionals are going to be reading it too. Oh, I hope so, because the the way that they have taken a kind of spark and used it in classrooms has been monumental and I think actually quite life-changing for some people. So I'm, I'm glad that this uh, that hopefully some are listening because then I can say through this medium, I can say thank you so, so much for doing this. And the next generation is going to be so much better off. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Al, for talking to me today. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.